Kidoki guys, why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, that's where we're at. So if you guys have been with us for any length of time, you know we've been going through this book. We started this around January. We've uh, just been taking our time going through it, and uh, we're in chapter 5. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We're happy to have some ushers to get you guys a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, um, accept this as a gift. We want you guys to be able to have a Bible. Um, so... Chapter 5, we'll be jumping to that in just a second. Um, before we begin, I want to just kind of set this up by basically saying that um, oftentimes our lives have a tendency to drift. Um, you know, in, in the business world, you can oftentimes call this mission drift, and that same can also apply within the church. And the idea is, is every business, every corporation, um, every nonprofit, so on and so forth, has a mission. The aim might be you know, different depending upon whatever the, the, the purpose of the organization is. But the church, obviously the mission or the aim for the church is really Jesus. It's to help people to see the beauty and the greatness of Jesus. It's not even necessarily evangelism. Evangelism comes under Jesus. Um, but the real main aim is Jesus. But there's always a tendency for us to drift from Jesus. That was the tendency within the early church, was the tendency to drift from Jesus to move to other secondary or subordinate types of topics. And whenever you have a group, for example, within a church that tends to focus on secondary topics, what you can have oftentimes is great division within that church over secondary issues. Sometimes it may be important secondary issues, but at the end of the day, what you have is a focus on something other than Jesus. And it's important to understand that what Paul is always trying to do in all of his letters is to help people see the significance, the importance, the beauty of Jesus. Not just that Jesus is significant, because he is. Not that Jesus is important, though he is. But also that Jesus is actually beautiful. I mean, it's easy for us to kind of look at Jesus sort of like a dignitary head. He's great. He's powerful. He's mighty. And that's, he is all of that. But he's more than just simply a president or a king of, you know, a region. He's actually glorious. He's beautiful. And so one of our problems oftentimes is we just think of him in terms and that in sort of monolithic terms or flattened terms, but the gospel reveals to us an image or a picture of God that is actually captures our hearts and changes us and ravishes our understanding and puts us in awe, if you would. If you think of it that way, causes us to be in awe of something that's glorious and beautiful. So we need to understand that there's a tendency for us to always drift. And so as we drift, there's a tendency for us to make what we can describe as course corrections, getting back onto the course from which we've lost our focus or our drift from. So what Paul has been basically describing in the book of Ephesians, is kind of laid it out for us this past uh, several months this way, is to think of the book of Ephesians like the first three chapters address or deal with the actions of a healing God. What God has done or what God has been up to bringing healing to this broken world. Obviously sending his son, coming into this world, dying on a cross, rising again the third day, ascending into heaven as king of kings, as lord of lords. Um, but then secondly, from basically chapters four to chapter six, we see the actions of a healing people. In other words, this is where the church becomes practical. Practice becomes what the church is about. In other words, the church practices... Uh, various ways that reflect God, not to earn God's love, not to earn God's favor, but because they have God's love, because they have God's favor. In other words, it's the idea of moving forth in a renewed identity as to who you are to demonstrate to this world what God is like. Paul introduced to us a phrase last week, um, which we'll reiterate and look more into this week, 
the phrase um, where he says, you are no longer children of darkness, but children of light. So the phrase that he introduces to us is the idea or the correlation between light and darkness. And the metaphor that Paul borrows or uses that actually kind of appears throughout the Old Testament and so on is one that basically describes you once lived in a vacuum, if you would, all right? A light vacuum is what we would call a black hole. Like you were once in darkness. You were once in this zone of darkness where it just sucked life out of not only you, but also all around you. That darkness was thick. It was dark. But God, out of great love, brought you out of darkness and into light. So Paul is going to say, Therefore, walk as children of light. Don't go back to darkness. We actually showed a video last week that kind of described uh, a gal that was part of a city impact up in San Francisco, which our uh, high schoolers have actually gone to go visit with them. Um, Maybe they met this girl, I don't know. But basically, she was trafficked. And so for two years, she lived as a sex uh, trafficked slave in San Francisco, in the heart of San Francisco, as a prostitute, doing things that she never would have dreamed of or never desired to do, at the end of the day, feeling defiled, broken, horrible, and yet Jesus rescued her. And so we ended last week by basically um, considering what would it look like for her to go back into darkness. It would have been for her to go back and find the pimp that trafficked her and for her to begin to flirt with him, to have a relationship with him. It'd be silly for that to happen because we would look at that and think that's ridiculous. You're flirting with something that is life-taking and destructive, but oftentimes as Christians, people that have been brought to light, people that have been transformed or changed, have a tendency to flirt with those things that were part of the darkness of their lives. And what Paul's exhortation is, don't do that. Don't do that, because what happens is darkness leads to this constant, um, unending destruction in our lives, and God has set you free. Now, at the same time, we also got to point out that this contrast between light and darkness should never ever lead somebody that's in the light to a sense of arrogance and the only reason why sometimes one of the claims that oftentimes are made against christians is that christians can be very arrogant they come across uh socially uh religiously morally intellectually in some cases um superior and they have a tendency to be condescending to others that are not where they're at, that are not like them, that are not living their lives in the same social slash moral slash religious type of a zone, a realm. And if you understand the gospel, there's no room for arrogance because you didn't save yourself. You didn't change your heart. You didn't transform. You didn't move yourself from that place. You were rescued. God did something on behalf of you to rescue you, to change you. And therefore, there is no boasting. It's one of the reasons why Paul would say there is no place for boasting. All that there is place for is glorying in God because God did something for you. So what Paul is then going to begin to unpack for us and point out for us is between this light-dark type of a theme, lightness or light and darkness type of a theme, is really this exhortation is don't, if you've been brought to the light, don't walk as if you are still in darkness. Don't live in a life, in a lifestyle that is consistent with the darkness by which you've been rescued from. Be careful. That's called drifting. Be careful because there needs a course correction in your life to get back. And so what Paul is then going to begin to say is he says, but rather what you should be doing is exposing the deeds of darkness. So I want to read, pick up from 
this particular section. So the reading this morning will be a little bit different. Um, We will actually read something and then go backwards. So we will start with verse 15. I'll go down about verse 21, and then we'll go back to about verse uh, 11, and I'll tell you why. Hopefully it'll make sense in just a second here. So first of all, take a look at verse 15. It says this, look carefully then. So if you want, if you are like me, I write in my Bible, um, you can underline the word then. The word then is sort of a, a transitory word, meaning it connects what Paul's about to say that follows with what he had just said, which we, again, like I said, we'll actually come back to. But Paul says, look carefully then how you live or how you walk. Um, I have written on top of that word walk, live, because the word walk is sort of a metaphorical way of basically describing how you conduct your life. We call that live, right? How you live. Um, Paul would say how you walk. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk or live. Not as unwise, but wise making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, dressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, Go all the way back to around verse 11. Paul then introduced, or coming from the introduction of light and darkness, Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Verse 12, he says, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that were done in secret, but, then, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For everything or anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What I love about this is um, a lot of scholars have kind of debated over exactly what is that little statement right there, awake, sleeper, and so on and so forth. Some have suggested, in fact, probably the predominance of uh, uh, theological thought is that this was actually an early church song. So think about it this way. Darren Clark, back in the day, whether or not he had an English accent or not, I don't know. Um, there were songwriters in the early church, and they wrote these songs, and Paul's like, that's such a good song, we're going to actually put that into the Bible. Like, this, this is such a good song. We're going we're gonna to recite this. And Paul says, do you remember how, like we say, like we sing, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. But in the context of all this, Paul has been talking about light and darkness, contrast. But in that context, Paul says, those that walk in light and that are careful to avoid darkness, as they walk their life, as they conduct their life in such a lifestyle, naturally, one of the byproducts of that, one of the examples or what will follow from that is exposure of darkness. Darkness will be exposed. Now, before I even go any further, I, I, I gotta say something. Is that, um, as I've studied this, um, the more I've invested time studying this, the more I've, I've realized uh, there's a vast uh, incongruity between my life and what Paul's about to unpack for us. Um, let me give you an example. If you are a teacher, if one of these days some of you may be studying, going to school, and you want to get a degree and become a teacher, um, one of the things that oftentimes you do is you go to school to learn history or sociology or math or whatever it is, and the aim of that is so that you would then at some point master that subject, right? Or think you're a master of that subject. And then you get a degree, and now you're qualified to actually go communicate, convey to others what that subject is all about. What's interesting about the Bible is that um, no one, no one, I don't care what they say, I don't care how many you know, PhDs they have behind their name, nobody has ever mastered the Bible. 
I haven't mastered it. I, don't, I haven't figured this whole thing out. Uh, I've devoted more of my life, more of my time, more of my energy uh, than any other thing in my entire life to studying the Bible. Like, that's, that's what I do for a living. It's not because it's like it's my job, I get a paycheck from it, because I love it. I love just studying. I love listening to sermons. I love podcasts. I love studying. I love learning. I love especially learning about history and the Bible. I love it. It's just, it's a passion of something I love to do. And the more I say, the more I become more and more aware of the fact that I know less and less. And not just simply knowledge-wise, but life. Like my, my life is incongruent with the things that it's saying. So I, I want to say very clearly that, that as we approach the things that Paul's going to say, things that he's going to suggest to us, we have to really address this in a posture of recognizing we will probably never come to a full attainment of what Paul is really going to lay out. But it's something, uh, at least in this life, I should say, we'll never come to an attainment. But the point of the matter is, is it's something for us to be aware of that Paul is calling us, that if we are in the light and we avoid the darkness, then what will naturally transpire in our lives is that evil darkness will be exposed. It will be exposed. That is what should be the constant ongoing, on-growing experience that you and I, if you are in Christ, if you've been rescued uh, from the darkness into the light, have by way of experience within your life. So hopefully um, that kind of sets a little bit of a context for this. So Paul is basically saying that if you're walking in the light, you will by nature uh, begin to expose darkness. That's what Paul's saying. It's just, it will, it's just a simple fact that that is what will happen. Then Paul begins to say, and this is where that word in verse 15 is really important. He says, look carefully then. So the word then actually connects the former thought, which has to do with exposed deeds of darkness, to what he's about to then say. So exposed darkness, therefore then, then Paul's going to give us a list of things. So um, there's a lot of stuff to cover. Again, like I said, realizing for me even pers- personally um, that there's a lot of incongruity that I would have to look at and be quite honest in my life to the things that Paul's going to lay out. Um, th- there's a tendency oftentimes when we come across certain things that we're like, ah, this is, this is heavy, this is hard, this is not easy material to go through. It's easier oftentimes to just sort of be like, all right, guys, we're going we're gonna to jump out of the book of Ephesians and go through a seven-week series on like how to be a nice neighbor, you know? And there's a tendency to kind of like shift that or run away from that or avoid that. But that never really leads to the fullness of life that God calls us to or wants for us. And so we're faced with having to confront our own insufficiencies, inaccuracies within our lives and inconsistencies and submit them to a gracious God that brings healing, restoration. Does that make sense? You guys following so far? So. Again, the idea that Paul is now going to begin to unpack for us is that this word expose, now, a lot of it has to do with this word expose. We've got to unpack this, all right? So let me, let me pray before we jump in, all right? I've, I've, I've I got a long introduction. Some of you might be like, I thought that was the introduction, kind of. That was just like one quarter of it. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll go into the rest of the three quarters, and then maybe even into the sermon. So God, right now, we ask for your help, and we pray that you would uh, inform our minds, God, flush out of our thoughts, our hearts, our understanding, anything that is not consistent with Jesus. Got areas in our life that have gone astray, that have gone off track, that have lost sight of what the mission is. 
We want to bring them back into the gracious, kind, loving lordship of King Jesus who washes, who cleanses, who forgives, who removes defilement, who restores, renews, rebuilds our hearts and then sets us on a course of life. Help that to be the posture of our hearts today, we pray, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, Paul's going to use that word expose, and we talked a little bit about this last week, and I will unpack this a little bit further just by way of review. Um, we said last week the word expose. I'll, I'll kind of give you a definition that um, I just borrowed from some of my Bible software. It says it's the word expose. Here's a couple ways to kind of view it. Uh, expose means to deprive of shelter, protection. So it means you think of you know, something in the cleft of a rock, and you remove the rock, and there's a lizard. You know, it's exposed. Or, um, it means to make known something that was once formally hidden. You make it known. You pull back the veil. You, you, know, you expose the truth about somebody, um, uh, maybe in a public setting or whatever. Uh, another one is to bring light to, you know, again, the metaphor that we use, to bring light to, you know, say, for example, if you expose somebody's lie, are you actually taking a flashlight and like shining it on them? No, you're, it's just a metaphor. It's exposing something that was once hidden, that was once in darkness, now it's come brought to the light. So that's the idea. Another way to think about this is uh, to disclose or to cause something to become visible or open or brought to display. Another way to kind of think of this is to convince, and this is the way that the word oftentimes can be used with the New Testament, is to convince of something. And that's what exposure does, because you can be confronted or be exposed by something that's going on and, and do nothing with that and walk away with that reality. And the Bible describes that somebody that, that knows, let's say, for example, you drink a smoothie this morning, you got massive smoothie on, you got a smoothie mustache, let's say, because uh, you didn't use a straw. And you come to church and someone says, you've got you got smooth on your face, and they're like, no, I don't have smooth. And they take a picture of you, like, let me show you a photo. That's, here's a photo of you, and they see it, and they're like, I'm still not convinced. And, and, and like, like, I'm just going to walk away. And they walk away, and they got this green mustache. You're like, that's really weird. Like, what is wrong with that person? Well, that's, that's foolish. Like, we'd be like, that's silly. Like, why would somebody know the truth and yet not let the truth convince them to change, to do something about that? And so the idea that's basically being conveyed here is that uh, to expose something is to bring a form of convincing. And so, for example, uh, there's three different ways in which we looked at this last week that this can be done. One, this can be done in private settings, private settings. This might be like a small group of people gathering together. The idea is to confront somebody. So think about, for example, within the therapeutic world, you have um, kind of like a, um, an intervention. So here's a family member who's on drugs um, he thinks his life is fine or is an alcoholic or something like that. And yet his decisions, his actions, his constant alcoholism or his constant drug use or her constant drug use, make it female as well, um, equal opportunity people here. Um, so let's just say that it's actually destroying their life, not just their life, but the circle of lives outside of them. But they don't know it. They're not aware of it. It's, it's like that, that green smoothie mustache on their face, they don't really realize how offensive it is, how silly it is, how ridiculous it is, how troubling it is, and so therefore somebody's got to confront them. So you have sort of like this um, little small setting, get everyone together, and you confront them saying, look, you're an alcoholic, you're a drug addict, and your actions are actually destroying the family, it's destroying our relationship, we can't trust you anymore, we don't know what you're doing with the money, we don't know what you're doing with your time, we don't know how you're living your life, it's actually bringing destruction. So we are here to expose 
your actions that are life taking, that are in darkness, that are like a black hole, sucking life and light into itself and not giving anything in return. So we're here to expose, we're here to convince you that you are on a path of death. That's maybe private. Public can be, let's say, public preaching. Um, it could be you know, going downtown, some of the bullhorn. Um, it could be someone uh, at church opening the Bible, opening the scriptures. If you've ever led a Bible study, if you've ever you know, preached or desired to preach or been to a stadium and heard you know, Billy Graham or Greg Laurie or someone preach, the idea is that's public proclamation. It's speaking forth. And when God's word gets preached and proclaimed and spoken forth or whatever, uh, there is a possibility, potential for a darkness to be unveiled sometimes or revealed. It's one of the reasons why sometimes people have great aversion to those public forms of proclamation because it's very discomforting. Sometimes it's not just simply because the scripture is discomforting. Sometimes it's because the people that proclaim it aren't very nice and uh, are very kind and they're condom- full of condemnation and uh, and there's a tendency to kind of bring offense, not by way of the gospel, but by way of being simply offensive. And the point of the matter is, is that when the gospel goes forth and speaks forth, light will be shining upon darkness and darkness will be exposed. And the hope is, is that when that happens, people will be convinced of actions within their life. My hope on every Sunday when I gather together with you guys and open up the scriptures is my hope is that if there are areas in your life that are actually leading to brokenness, adding to your defilement leading to the brokenness and breakdown of relationship amongst other family members, your spouse, your kids, whatever. My hope is that you would hear Jesus, that you would repent from that lifestyle, repent from those things that are bringing brokenness and destruction and sin, and lead and turn back to Jesus and find his healing. That's the hope. But it takes convincing. It takes exposing. The third way that we describe, and which we'll kind of jump into more so this week in the next few weeks, as to, I think, what Paul has in mind is also by way, and I'll tell you why I think Paul has this particular idea in mind, is by way of the conduct of our lives. How we live our lives should be done in such a way that brings exposure, convinces the world around us that's in darkness that there's a better way. There's another way. There's another way to be human, if you want to put it that way. Rather than living within the system of this world that's based upon, so much so upon checks and balances and our acceptance and our identity is built upon who I am and how I project myself or who I am within my business or who I am if I have a kid or if I don't have a kid or if I don't have lots of kids, multiple kids, depending upon where you live. Or if you live, for example, I grew up in Orange County. Like Orange County, it's kind of funny. I had an opportunity to go to Seattle and go to Portland, and I grew up in Orange County. So it's it's interesting. I was making this comparison. Like in Seattle and in Portland, it's like up there, you've you've got to just look look different. I was going to say weird, but you got to look different. Like you got to have you know some form of piercing. You got to have a tattoo on your face, something that just marks you. Your hair's cut really weird, whatever. Um, In Orange County, you've got to look really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you've got to look spectacular. You have to have a certain body size. If it's a little bit on the heavy fit size or heavy size, uh, then, then you don't fit in, and there is a tendency for you to be expelled from the group of acceptance. But regardless of where you live, there are all sorts of means that determine who's accepted, who's in, who's out, who's rejected. So the point of the matter is, is that what Paul is saying is that when the gospel comes forth, it welcomes us, it calls us, no matter who we are, to come to him to be accepted, to be transformed. And so the point is, 
is that our lives should be lived in such a way that bring a convincing to the world around us that the ways of this world, the path of this world, that this world sets forth and projects is actually a path of darkness that leads to brokenness, that leads to hurt. But Jesus offers an alternative that leads to life. That's the aim. Let me say one final thing before I kind of give an outline. So there's a tendency, there are some within a church, I think, have part of mission drift, have taken this concept, this ideology of um, exposing and had sort of turned it into, that's the main purpose. The main purpose of the church is to do nothing but expose evil, and darkness, and wickedness, and sin. Not only outside of the church, but also within the church. And the emphasis, the focus, is so heavy upon that which is wrong, that which is out of place, that which is messed up, that which brings shame, that which brings destruction. But the, you don't get the idea that at the end of the day, there is any way or clear-cut path to that which leads to life and wholeness, and healing. So in other words, the emphasis shifts, degrades to, if you would, to nothing more than focusing on that which is wrong. Instead, I would put it this way, suggest, what Paul's going to say is that the main aim of exposing darkness is not to just simply sit there to expose it for exposure's sake, but ultimately to point to the way of life, to point to Christ, who is life, to help people see Jesus. So in other words, you can be somebody that has very clear ability to identify everything that's wrong within this world, everything that's wrong perhaps even within the church, but you do so in such a way that comes across arrogant, marginalizing. You have a tendency to kind of put others down that don't see things exactly within the same perspective as you see things, and that attitude of condemnation, that's part of the rottenness corruption that's within this world that Jesus wants to set us free from. So it's not just simply pointing out or exposing that which is wicked or evil. It's about pointing to that which, by way of word and deed, that which leads to life, Jesus. This is the point. Paul is saying that we need to expose. If you're in the light, you've been brought out of darkness, live your life in such a way that points us out. So, so what Paul does He's going to point out a handful of things, I don't know, maybe eight or nine of them. We're not going to go through all of them today, uh, but we will go through them over the next couple of weeks. And I want to just kind of give you a, a brief outline of them. I don't have it up on the screen, so you just have to listen to it. Um, next week, I will have it up on screen. But I'll kind of point them out to you. It begins at verse 15, goes on to about verse 21. And there's a handful of things that Paul's going to point out. So if you think of it this way, walking in the light, Paul's going to say, looks like whatever he's about to say. So walking in the light looks like this. But the idea is that as you walk in the light, you will also expose the darkness. So walking in the light is not just simply pointing to Jesus. It is also exposing darkness. It's not just pointing out darkness, but it's also pointing to Jesus. Does that make sense? So it's not if and, it's both. Exposing darkness, revealing light. So here's what Paul's going to say. Verse 15, I'll go through these really quick. I'm not going to spend time on the first two. Actually, I'll just be very brief because I'll come back and talk about them. The first of which, verse uh, 15, the first part of that, he says, walking in the light looks like self-inspection or correction. And exposing darkness uh, basically has to do with exposing self-deception. So we'll unpack that more in a moment. Uh, Walking in the light, secondly, latter part of verse 15, walking in the light looks like walking in wisdom. Uh, exposure of darkness looks like exposing folly or foolishness. 
walking in the light, the third one is verse 16. Walking in the light looks like the proper stewardship of time. Recognizing that each one of us has been given this thing called a life. It's, we've been getting a life. Every one of us, we're breathing, we're here, we got a pulse, I think. And the reality is that means we're, we're either going to use this life that we have to use it as a means to become like a garden that's life-giving, that's fruit-bearing, that's a blessing to other people, or we will be like a black hole. We will be that type of person that's always frustrated, always complained, always upset, always embittered, never forgiving. And the idea that Paul's going to say is that we've been given life to be a steward of time, but exposure of darkness looks like an exposure of from being mastered by the spirit of this age. In other words, rather than being mastered, dominated, controlled by the predominant thought or ethos, if you would, of this world, Paul's going to invite us through the gospel to say, see your life as a gift from God and redeem the time. Steward it. Don't be controlled by time. Uh, the fourth one, walking in light, looks like agreement with the will of God. It looks like agreement with the will of God. Paul is going to say, um, basically, I'll, I'll read to you, verse 17. It says this. Um, it says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The word understand basically means to be in agreement with. So walking in the light looks like having a heart that says, I want my heart to be in congruency with God's to be in agreement with God. So what God says on a matter, on a subject that's clear, I, 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 want, I want my heart to be like soil to accept that seed so that it will then bear forth fruit. The exposure of darkness, contrary or on the opposite side of that coin, would be to be an expose or an exposure of self-will and determination. The opposite of it is to say, I know what's right. God, I'm not really sure if he does. The Bible, I'm not even really sure if it can be trusted. Uh, preacher, certainly he can't be trusted. But the point of the matter is, I trust myself. I trust my own path. I trust my own intellect. I trust my own understanding. I trust what I can see, but I don't trust anybody else. That, Paul says, is actually a path that leads to darkness. And the converse to that, the opposite of that, is to find a heart that is in agreement with God's. Next is verse 18. He says, walking in the light actually looks like being spirit-filled. Letting the Holy Spirit, God's presence, actually change you, transform you, and walking or exposing the darkness actually looks like an expose upon narcoticizing ourselves with cheap substitutes. That's why Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. You're turning to a cheap alternative that only lasts for, you know, an hour and a half, and you got to keep it going, or if you're going to switch from alcohol to another drug, might have a little bit longer shelf life, but at some point, it stops. And once it stops, and you find yourself partaking that hook, and if once it's in you, you can't, it controls you, you don't control it, and it begins to leach lethal doses of destruction in your life, darkness. And rather than you being a life-giving garden, you become a black hole of brokenness. So Paul says, there's an alternative to that. There's an alternative to narcoticizing ourselves with drugs and alcohol and entertainment and all sorts of other things that we find something to sink our teeth into that really actually turns out to be nothing more than cotton candy. Um, But the point of the matter is, is that Paul says there's an alternative to that, and that is letting the Holy Spirit rule over you. We'll talk more about that in weeks to come. Uh, Verse 19, he says, walking in light looks like singing to God. It looks like singing to God. Some of you might be wondering, you know, why do Christians sing? Well, because 
people that are in the light, people that have been moved, people that are in love, if I can shift metaphors, people that are in love, sing. Would you agree? People that are in love, people that have a light heart, sing. I mean, people that have a heavy heart sometimes sing, but for the most part, people who have a light heart, their heart is filled with freedom, their heart is flying, they sing. People that are heavy oftentimes don't sing, or if they do sing, they sing about their woes, the blues, their pain, their sorrow, they hurt. So the invitation is walking in the light leads to singing to God, but at the same time, it exposes self-preoccupation with our circumstances and with our pain. Um, Next is walking in light looks like, verse 20, thanksgiving, giving thanks, giving thanks to God because we have a father. He's not just God. He's just not a deity out there, up there, but he's a father. Jesus tells us he's a dad. He's a daddy that loves you. We can give thanks to him. And what this does is it exposes the ingratitude within our heart. The mentality of we don't know what to think. We've got these things or feelings maybe in a heart. Uh, we see beauty and I was kind of thinking about this last night. I was watching sunset and there's a tendency i think for us as human beings to kind of really wrestle with um the problem of evil we're like well if god really exists then why is there so much evil and i think it's a legit question but the reality is i think there's even a greater problem if if there is a loving god that exists we have a problem with beauty why is there beauty and not just why is there beauty out there but why do we love it why are we moved by it why are there you know 50 people on top of terrace hill looking at this sky mesmerized by it why are why are people stand at the ocean and are moved by the size and the pounding of the waves why are people moved why why did i cry like a baby when my wife gave birth to my first daughter it, i didn't like have a i didn't control that i wasn't like okay cry as soon as i see the baby come out you know like the moment my daughter came into the world i'm just like i i, I was overwhelmed by beauty and emotion and even though my baby was covered in nastiness, I <laughs> loved her. We got a problem of beauty. How, how do we describe that? What, what Paul says, people that are moved by beauty, they give thanks to God. They give a sense of exposing the ingratitude that is oftentimes pervasive in our heart. Uh, finally, um, walking light, really, in verse 21, reminds us that it looks like servanthood. We serve one another. And this is in contrast to the darkness, which is self-exaltation. In other words, maybe put it another way, uh, the perennial game of thrones that you and I are prone to play with everybody. Whereby our frustration oftentimes is derived from the fact that nobody knows how great of a king I truly am. I'm frustrated because no one's serving me the way they should be serving me. And therefore, my life is full of frustration. But Paul's going to say there is an alternative to that called walking in the light, and it is serving others. Do you know that each one of these that Paul lays out are really characteristics and evidences are evidenced by Jesus' life, that Jesus was servant. Jesus gave thanks to God. Jesus did all of these things. And so we see the idea is Paul is saying that as you demonstrate the life that you've been set free from darkness into light, you will expose darkness. So let's jump into these. Um, introduction is now officially over. Ready? You guys ready? You're like, oh, wow, I, was, I thought the sermon was over. No, I'm just getting barely started here. So let's go. Just kidding. We won't be too long. Um, let's first of all take a look at verse uh, 15. 
And we'll take a look at the first one on that entire list, which we won't get through the entire list. But first of all, walking in the light looks like the self-corrective, self-aware life. And the way Paul puts it, he says this, look carefully then how you walk or how you live. Old King James basically says, walk circumspectly. Anybody have an old King James that maybe uses that or that phrase or that terminology that's used? Walk circumspectly. That's actually a great word. Uh, circumspectly uh, actually comes from two words. Circumference. Circum means to make a circle to look around. Spec comes from like spectacles. It's the idea of looking. So the idea is to look around your life. Paul's not just saying look around at the lives of everybody else and how jacked up and how messed up they are and how much they're not reading the Bible and how messed up they are and not understanding proper theology. Paul's saying stop doing this. Very similar the parallel would be to Jesus saying, look at the little speck in your brother's eye. Look at the log that's in yours. Paul is basically reiterating that within his own language. He's in essence saying, inspect your life. Are you aware of your life? Are you aware of how you live? Now, this can go either one or two ways. This can either become something where you focus on the reason why you try to spend time inspecting your life is because you want to look good in front of other people. This is actually a deviation from that, meaning we can only focus on the things that what others are going to see, and therefore we want to look good, so we do everything we can. We spend all of our energy somehow looking good in front of them, but really it's just a charade. It's a facade. It's not real. It's a veneer. And we do that because we want others to think more highly of us than we really are. So you might be with a group of people, or let's say, for example, if you're driving down the road and you see an old grandma broken down on the side of the road, or obviously your tire's obviously visibly broken or messed up or flat, uh, but because you're by yourself, uh, you probably won't stop. But if you had a carload full of friends or you're being tailed by somebody, and in your mind you're like, this could be a great PR stunt. Like, if I stop, help grandma, all my friends might even, I might even get an Instagram photo out of this, they might even post it, people might even think how wonderful of a Christian I am. It's just a PR stunt. You're, you're not looking at your life with an aim of trying to be more like Jesus. You're looking at your life with an aim of being higher up in the polls with regard to how people look at you. Um, the opposite side of this is to become so full of self-inspection that you fall into despair. I love the Puritans. Um, maybe some of you might be familiar with the Puritans. But Puritans oftentimes uh, created, there are people within Puritan camps that had a tendency to be prone to self-inspection uh, to the point of ad nauseum, where it would lead to a constant state of melancholy or despair. That's not what he's talking about either. He's talking about you we might even say, just live with a self-awareness. Are you self-aware? Are you aware of how other people perceive you? Are you somebody that's always prone to lash out, to become angry, have a temper? Do you know that? Are you aware of that? It's like, again, going back to green smoothie on your mustache. Do you know that? Are you, are you aware of the fact that you may be somebody that's overly defensive whenever pushed on, challenged? Is your tone of voice one in which is a little bit snappy, a little bit short, I just have a person that's maybe you wear your emotions on your sleeve. You are ultra, ultra emotional to the point where nobody can say anything to you because you immediately just melt into a puddle of tears. Are you aware? The idea here is not so that you would just see the darkness, but that you would see opportunities to shine forth brightly the beauty of Jesus. That Paul is not just simply saying, you know, inspect your life as an end of itself, but inspect your life so that you would be aware of who you are as a redeemed image bearer of God. That your identity is not in something that you project about yourself via you know, social media, but it is in Christ. 
And if your life is one in which you project it out upon the world so that other people think more highly of you than you really are, at some point that charade will come crashing down on you. And when it does, you'll be full of despair. In other words, when you're found, when you are finally found out, your world will come crashing down. That's a place of brokenness. And Jesus calls us to come into the light. That means to expose all the darkness that's there, all that which is life-taking, that which is life-breaking within our lives, to expose it. So a person that is in Christ that has fully come to the recognition that their life, their identity is, is in Christ, and they're learning to surrender that and give that over to Jesus, that's a free person that can actually go to others and say that they're close to things like this. All right, so here's the practicality of this. So if, for example, if you're married, you should be able to feel the freedom to go to your spouse or if you have a roommate, to go to your roommates or if you have a good close family members or you're part of a Bible study or go to your Bible study leader or somebody that knows you fairly well. If you are somebody that is not known by anybody, you're in a dangerous place. But if you are known by somebody, for you to be able to go to them and say, all honesty, look, um, if I promise to you that whatever you say to me, I will not get defensive and I will not say hurtful things to you. Will you promise to be honest with me? And they say, sure. Um, then, then, then you can ask, are there areas of my life that are not consistent with Jesus that are actually very offensive to and odorous to your life and destructive to the family and destructive to our relationship? Is there, are there things that I'm doing in my life that, that need the healing touch of Jesus? I want to walk circumspectly. I want my life to be transparent. I want there to be a sense where, but look, if your identity is in who you think you are in terms of how you perceive yourself or how you project yourself, you'll never ask that question. Because the moment someone's like, well, you know, I'm glad that you asked because you're really pushy. We're glad you asked, but every single time I bring something up to you, you're always defensive. You're always pushing back. You're always fighting. You're aggressive. You're always looking for an argument. I don't, I don't like that about you. And then you'll melt. You'll either fly off the handle and get angry, or you will melt in despair. But if your identity is in Christ, you can say to that person, I didn't know that. If I'm de- defensive like that, if my defensiveness has actually hurt you and wounded our relationship sorry. I don't want to be that way. I want to change. I want God to transform me. I want my life to be like a mirror that reflects the beauty of Jesus in this world. I don't want to be like a black hole that's just sucking in life, sucking life from other people, but life giving in the light. So the idea is for us to really be aware of our lives. So think of it this way. Um, To be self-aware, to Understand how we live, how we act, how we work. Um, Second thing is really the idea of walking in the light also looks like wisdom. It looks like wisdom, walking in wisdom, living a life of wisdom. And what happens is is that when we walk in wisdom, uh, it actually exposes folly. Now, some of us might need a little bit of a definition as to what wisdom is. And here's a good definition that I heard. Um, basically goes like this. Wisdom is not just knowing how things work or how they really are, but knowing what to do with them. It's not just knowing how things work or how they really are, but what to do with them. 
So in other words, you can be somebody that, that, that's, that's very cerebral. You have a lot of, uh, you love information. You love reading stuff. You love listening to Bible studies. You love investing your mind in all sorts of information. But if you don't know what to do with that, if you don't know how to handle that information in a wise way, then you will actually be somebody that was destructive. So this is one of the reasons why sometimes Christians, for example, can be very cerebral in their understanding of the Bible, meaning they're like, I love Bible study. I love studying the Bible. I memorize all sorts of scriptures. I memorize all sorts of arguments uh, about the Christian faith and how to argue for the Christian faith and do all these other types of things. But they're the type of person that does not know how to be sensitive to their spouse or to their kids or to actually be emotionally present with their kids when their kids are there, or to actually know how to love them when their kids are going through hard times, or give them a hug, or to say, I love you, because they know all sorts of information about how things are, but they don't know what to do with that information. That's not wisdom. That's knowledge, and there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is knowing how things are, but knowing how to do with them, and knowing what to do with that information. So, the book of Proverbs is actually a really amazing book that actually addresses all of this. And in fact, if you guys want to turn there real quick, you can. Um, if not, I'll just read it. I don't have, like I said earlier, nothing up on screen. So um, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 4 is this great passage. I've been kind of reading through this and chewing on this a little bit. But there's some really interesting parallels here that I kind of noticed that makes me even wonder if, if Paul, when he wrote chapter 5 to this group of Christians living in Ephesus, if Paul actually had in mind um, Proverbs chapter 4. Here's what Paul says in verse um, 18. He says this, but the path of the righteous is like light of the dawn. It's like the morning sun rising up, bringing light to this vast land of darkness. And Paul says, but the path of righteousness is like the light of the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter into the full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And Paul goes on, to, or uh, Solomon goes on to write in this book of Proverbs in verse 20, he says, my son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Um, a lot of scholars has, have suggested that maybe uh, Solomon, as he wrote this book, it was sort of Proverbs, it was kind of like a manual that was given to a dad that a dad was then to read to a son. As, and I, I never really thought about it that way, but it was like, that's, that's brilliant if that's really the case, that the idea was that training for a father to train his son, he would go through the Proverbs with him. And if you're dad, I, don't, I got two daughters, so I don't have any boys, but if you're dad, um, maybe as your kids are growing up, maybe use the book of Proverbs as, as a manual to teach them, to train them, point them to Jesus ultimately. Um, but the idea is to impart to them wisdom. And so what Solomon goes on to say in verse 23, he says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look diligently or directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. And the idea that Solomon seems to be implying is that God is calling people to rise up to, by his grace, to receive his word that is life-giving, that is wisdom imparted, being given. And the idea is that as they walk in that, it's like light shining on a dark earth bringing light to the areas of darkness. And this is so important because if you think about our lives, our lives are so pervasive with regard to darkness that we need a great light to shine to pull out the darkness out of our lives. In other words, we are so prone to being deceived, assuming, thinking our lives are just hunky-dory, but in reality, they're full of pain, and hardship, and sorrow. And a lot of times we don't know what to do with that, so we oftentimes just deny it's actually there. And the call of the gospel is to don't deny it anymore. 
to lay it down at his feet. That in him, in God, is a path of life. Paul's urging for the followers in Ephesus and ultimately to us is that we'd walk in wisdom knowing that this world in which we live in, this isn't our world. We've been put here by God. That God created all things. That God orders all things. That God knows how this world works. And so in reality, we, we, uh, you know, as we explore this earth, and especially even through the sciences like uh, just observing this world, we, we begin to realize that there are things that are at play within this world. You, if you violate them, then you enter into places of pain. One example of that uh, in nature is gravity. Like, like you, you can say, I don't like gravity. I mean, you can despise gravity all you want and hate gravity. But if, for example, on a weekend, Friday night, Saturday night, you go out and hang out with a bunch of friends, you have a little bit too much to drink, you stand up on top of a house, and you attempt to jump into a swimming pool, and you miss the swimming pool uh, by a few feet, you will fall down and probably break a leg. Because, A, you're doing something stupid, to gravity was something that you just can't violate and get away with. It will have the final word. Unless a greater law overrides gravity, we call it aerodynamics. So the point is, is that in this world in which we live, in the natural world, there are consequences that if you violate the order of things, you will pay. It's just, it's just it's the way it is. Jump out of a, uh, an airplane 3,000 feet up without a parachute, you will probably die. This is what it is. It is the way it is. It's not necessarily because gravity is evil. It's just a law. It's just there. But the same is also true in that case with everything. Relationships, for example, primary one. That there is relational consequences. That relationships are fragile. It's one of the things that if you, in relationships, violate relationship and you have a hard heart and you don't want to try to bring restoration and bring healing and offer forgiveness and uh, be willing to accept forgiveness and bring reconciliation, then there will be pain that will resonate in various circles outward to cause pain to many. You cannot avoid that. That's why divorce is never easy. It's always extremely painful for years to come. My parents were divorced when I was 12. And honestly, quite honestly, I'm still working through some of the pain of what happened when I was 12 and even years around that because you cannot remove yourself from violating certain laws in nature without consequences. And what Paul is saying is that this is, there's an order to this universe and God has created it and designed it in such a way and that if you violate those laws and those rules, then there will be consequences. Pain, hurt, sorrow, torment, suffering will take place, otherwise known as darkness. Yet, in that darkness, is hope. Jesus plunged himself into our darkness, came into our world. Miracle of all miracles, our God became vulnerable. Think about it this way. On two unbelievably profound occasions, the first of which, Jesus, God, naked in a crib, probably wetting himself. This was God subjecting himself, giving himself to something 
that all of us live our lives desperately in avoidance of vulnerability. Finally, second image, God, Jesus on the cross, naked, taunted, shamed, crucified. Have you ever been struck with the question, why did he not get down from the cross? Why did he even bother coming in this world? Answer, simply, love. There is no other way to rescue you out of your darkness than for him to plunge himself into your darkness to rescue you. And it's free. It costs him everything. But to the degree that you receive that and accept that, it will change you. It will pull you out of darkness into light so that as you live your life in such a way in wisdom, circumspectly examining your life and a host of other things that we'll look at, you will by nature, by your very conduct, show this world, convince this world. Will they believe? Probably not. Some may. All won't. That we don't have to live according to the rules that make up this world that lead to constant, ongoing, perennial brokenness and hurt and shame and suffering and defilement because Jesus has come. And we have this great news to announce. There's freedom. There's life. I want to invite you into that. We're going to finish. I want you all to stand. We're going to just finish with some singing. We'll have some communion in the back. And we partake of communion as a way of reminding us of what Jesus has done for us. I want to invite you into that. Paul says when you partake of the communion, do so in a worthy manner. The point is, is that do it in a way which you recognize what Jesus has done for you. He has cleansed you. He has washed you. It was free grace put on display for you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't uh, attain to it. It's been freely given to you because he loves you, which means that you are accepted in Christ. To walk that in congruency in a worthy manner is to say, are there people in my life right now that I am refusing to accept, to love, to forgive? Painful. That's the hard reality. But the unbelievable beauty of it all, and it's beauty, it's beauty beyond the darkness is to allow God to melt your heart in such a way to show you His free grace, to melt the hardness, to push back the disbelief, to create in you a heart that's like a child that says, Dad, Father, I believe you. I trust you. I'll follow you. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Even if it's in darkness, even if it's in pain, even if it's in sorrow or hurt, trust you will be with me even in those moments. That's the gospel he invites us into. I want to invite you into that. If you're here, follow Jesus. I want to invite you to inspect your life. Think about it. Are there areas in your life that need to be laid down at Jesus' feet? Um, he's already demonstrated a great love to you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to think about your life. Think about the path that you're on. Is it life-giving? Is it more like a black hole or more like a garden? Is your life suck life out of other people or is it like a garden that gives life to other people? One's darkness, one's light, one's life, one's death. To hear the voice of Jesus when he says, come to me. All you are part of this world, you labor, you go to work, you come back, tired, you the same cycle over and over and over again. You 
work a lot of hours, you get paid a little money, you're always worried and wondering, are you gonna, is there going to be enough for tomorrow? You live in scarcity because you live in scarcity. You're controlled by anxieties and fear. Jesus says, lay that aside. Come to your Father who has abundance, abundance of love, abundance of forgiveness, abundance of cleansing, abundance of kindness to give to you. Let's come to him. God, thank you for great grace. I want to sing now. So we sing, guys, lift up your voices, feel free to use your bodies, as I mentioned earlier, as an instrument. If you're here this morning, you have anything that's going on in your life, anything that's going on, you need prayer. We have some people off to the side that want to pray for you. They want to be there for you and help you in anything that's going on. Don't leave without taking things to Jesus and letting him heal you. Same.